Made Visible is a podcast that gives a voice to people with invisible illnesses. There's no blueprint about how to live with an invisible illness or how to be there for someone who has one. We're here to help people feel less alone as they strive to create a normal life and to create an awareness of how we can be supportive of people who seem fine but aren't. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro. We're so glad you're here. Today's guest is someone I know from our high school days. A few months ago, she posted an article on Facebook that she wrote on Thrive Global that really caught my eye and made me interested in chatting with her on the podcast. The article was about a topic we definitely never discussed when we were in high school. I'm excited to share her story and her experience living with a mother with a chronic illness. So welcome, Becca Skolnick. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So happy to have you here. It's been, you know, like 15 plus years. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. So I'm a clinical psychologist. Um, I'm actually a co-founder of a group private practice with two other partners called Mindwell NYC. And we do lots of different kinds of therapies like cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavior therapy for people with anxiety, depression, eating disorders, all kinds of things. And how did you decide to go into a group practice like that? Well, I had been working at a private practice that was someone else's group beforehand, and we wanted to kind of do our own thing, be a little more flexible, and just kind of offer a different approach. Love it. That's awesome. So let's dig into why you are here in the article that I mentioned So do you remember how old you were when you realized that your mom had a chronic illness? Well, she actually, she was diagnosed when I was born. So it's hard to really remember a specific time. I was just kind of since I've been here. (laughs) But I, you know, I remember a lot of times growing up when things were a little more chaotic and she was in and out of the hospital and I was very aware of what was going on. And so what is it that she had? So she had scleroderma. It's a chronic diffuse disease and type of autoimmune disorder. And how long had she had it? She was diagnosed when I was born. So I don't know if it was like dormant and then um, it came out, but she had it for about 32 years. Wow. And so what were the symptoms that she was dealing with? Related to scleroderma, it really means like tightening of the skin or hardening of the skin. And so there was a lot going on with her skin and her fingers. She wasn't able to spread out her fingers, like her hands were clutched. And then she had a lot of problems with different organs. She ended up having kidney failure. She had many surgeries, hysterectomy, two kidney transplants. She had to go on dialysis. Um, She had Raynaud syndrome. Uh, Sjogren's syndrome, a whole list of issues. So what do you remember growing up and dealing with that and her being hospitalized or dealing with these things on a daily basis? Well, you know, I remember a lot of, especially before I was seven, she was having a lot of kidney failure. And that was, I think it was around when I was seven, she had the first transplant. So I remember visiting her in the hospital a lot. She was home sometimes, but she was also there. We also at home had a nurse for her a lot when I was younger. So I remember kind of hanging out with her and her nurse or her and her physical therapist. Um, And a lot of different kind of unknowns. I had a lot of family members around, my grandparents, my cousins, I remember, you know, some nights where it was just me and my dad and I don't have any siblings. So 
a lot of time with him, kind of whether it was having dinners or him trying to make things sort of normal. Yeah. I remember episode two with Carly Alterman. We were talking about her dad passed away of Lyme disease. And she talked about how she thought that him being in a wheelchair and him being sick was the norm Mm -hmm. because that's all she knew. She didn't know him healthy. And so I wonder what it was like for you as a kid, you know, going out into the world, going into school as obviously, you know, we know each other from high school. You grew up here in New York. What was it like trying to live a quote unquote normal life with a mom who was sick? Yeah, I mean, it was exactly that. It was just my norm. I didn't know anything different. I do remember there was a point where she was, it was recommended that she get a walker, and I was very against it. I I might have been like three years old, but I wouldn't let her. (laughs) Um, So I, you know, I kept saying no and like pushing it down, and she actually ended up not needing it because she was like, okay, well, then I guess I have to walk. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But yeah, I think, you know, it really, it didn't really bother me or I didn't notice such a big difference. Um, my mom really made a point to be involved as much as she could, and she knew my friends and their parents. She came to my kindergarten class and talked about her illnesses and the medicine she takes. And I really. What was the plan in doing that? I think just to make me feel more comfortable and to make it seem less sort of scary and unknown. And she even volunteered at my elementary school when she could in the library. So she kind of knew everyone and was there. And she was very funny and personable. So that's more how I thought of her. Yeah, it sounds like she was a real active participant in your life and your Mm -hmm. childhood. And it wasn't like she was defined by her health, which I think was a big part that you really mentioned when we were, you know, communicating about this. Can you talk more about who she was apart from her illness? Yeah, I mean, she was... Very funny. She's sort of like a firecracker, (laughs) very spunky. She always had a comment to say, you know, under the table about what was going on. Or um, she was very sly and probably the strongest person I know, very resilient. She was kind of like the first anyone she met would become her best friend, whether it was someone that was my parents' friend or. Um, it was like someone she met on the airplane or <laughs> she was just sitting there in a cafe. She was just very friendly and personable. She loved to travel. Before she got sick, she actually, she was a buyer for children's clothing. And then she opened a restaurant that's still around called Good Enough to Eat. Oh, yeah, um, of course. Yeah, with two other people. Was... Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> So she had a lot going on. She was probably more entrepreneurial before I was born, uh, but she definitely had that streak going too. Yeah. And what were some of the biggest challenges of living with her and growing up with someone that had a chronic illness? I think it was mostly just the anxiety about not knowing like when she would be okay, if she would have to go back to the hospital. And even kind of always waiting for the next shoe to drop. Like, I knew it was chronic. I knew there was always going to be something. How did you know that? Uh, My dad and my grandma would talk to me about it a lot and just kind of explain. And my mom would talk to me about it, too, and explain that, you know, we don't always know when things are going to happen. I learned a lot about kidneys (laughs) when I was younger, and especially when she was waiting for a kidney for a transplant. So I knew that was happening, and I didn't know when that would be or what it would be like after that. 
Uh, so I think that was really, it was just the unknown and a lot of anxiety about things. And how did you cope with that? I really made a lot of friends, I think. I was very shy, so I didn't really talk to a lot of people, but somehow they took me in. <laughs> and, you know, I spent a lot of time with my friends at my house or at their houses. And I spent a lot of time with my cousins. I used to write in journals when I got older and still do that sometimes. And I think it was it was really helpful to have a lot of support and other people around. Did you ever go to therapy? I I didn't go until I was much older. Um, I think I maybe I went once when my mom was having her second kidney transplant. The school recommended it, and I was kind of like, I don't need it, <laughs> um, which <laughs> is ironic. I've already. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, at the same time, I was like, this isn't new. This is my life, so I'm okay. Yeah, um, I mean, I, it sounds like this is all you knew. You weren't hiding anything at home. Your friends were aware of what was going on and people were talking to you about it, which is so huge because if it was hidden from you, then there would be some sort of uncomfortability, Mm -hmm. I'm sure, in your home life, in your school life, in your friendships of there's this like thing going on and no one's talking about it. Mm -hmm. Did you ever step into the role of a caregiver for your mom? Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of inevitable. Um, My dad, I'm very fortunate, my dad really was the main caregiver, and he was very involved with all of her doctor's appointments and uh, all the medicine she was taking, which was quite a bit, and he just really took the lead so that I could be a, a person and go to school and do the things I wanted. But I was certainly there for her emotionally a lot of the time, and Uh, especially toward the end of things, I really had to step in. Uh, I think my dad needed help and I wanted to step in and I became more involved with her doctors. I slept over once a week um, because my dad would go to work and I had to help her take her medicine and figure out medicines and make sure she was eating and feed her and all that kind of stuff. So you lost her in October of 2017. Right. What was that process like? Uh, Did you know it was coming? Was she really not well at that point? Talk a little about that. Yeah, it's sort of a crazy thing, I think. But she, you know, so as I said, I'd known my whole life that she was sick. And I always knew this day was going to come. I didn't know when it would come. And it sort of was a series of events that started happening that we didn't know. We, my family, the doctors, nobody really knew what was happening. But she had a very minor surgery uh, about six months before, like in April. And it for her, every surgery was a little more than minor because she was, you know, compromised and you know we had to be careful but it went well and then after that it was like not healing very well and that no one really knew why and she ended up being in a lot of pain and feeling pretty down around that and then it was just sort of a series of things she started becoming a little more forgetful sort of like dementia symptoms but I don't want to call it that because I'm not really sure that's what was happening But all of a sudden, like, couldn't remember which medication she was supposed to take. And she'd been taking her medicine, like, 30 pills a day for 30 years. And she did it on her own. So it was a pretty big difference. Um, She was, like, cold. She She just really kind of was out of it. 
And we were concerned and we started kind of trying to do neuropsych testing and neurological testing and her doctors were all trying to figure it out and it really wasn't clear what happened, but we ended up having to take her to the emergency room because she was really uncomfortable and it was basically the last six weeks she was in the hospital and we were just testing to figure out what was going on. So, Did you know it was the end? I was concerned that that's what was happening. I definitely worried about it. Um, there were a lot of ups and downs. There were times we she was totally unconscious, and so we were like, okay, that's, you know, is she going to come back? And then there were times where she woke up and seemed to be getting a lot better. She actually left for, like, two days and went to rehab and then went back to the hospital. Um, but I, I was worried that that's what was going on. I think no one wanted to think that or believe that. And it, we don't even know if it was related to scleroderma or what mm-hmm. it was still to this day. So it's a little bit, it was hard to really know at the Yeah, time. and I'm sure it's hard to wrap your head around when you don't really know, is there something that could have been preventative or mm-hmm. done differently, but we don't really know what happened here. Mm-hmm. Prior to last year, do you feel like you were living in fear to a certain extent of when this day was going to come? Did it feel like it prevented you in any way from living your life? I think it was always in the back of my mind, but I didn't really let it kind of get in the way. My mom really wouldn't have wanted it to get in the way. Um, Even when she was in the hospital most recently, she was asking me, I think, if I was going to go somewhere. And I said, well, let's see how you're doing. And she was like, no, (laughs) like you go if you want to go. So... I I really didn't let it interfere. You know, I studied abroad in Australia. I I went to school close to home, but not that close, like four hours away. Um, And I I think I really didn't want it to get in the way because I didn't know when or how or what would happen. Yeah. And so how did you deal with coping with her death? Well, it's still something I'm dealing with. I think, you know, really, again, helps to have a lot of friends and family support. My fiance is very supportive. And I, you know, kind of just take things one day at a time. I think it's sometimes it comes in waves. I feel sad. I feel angry. I feel scared. Other times I feel numb or I feel happy. Like I'm not really thinking about it. So it's, I've sort of just been taking it one step at a time. And what's your relationship with your dad? Did that shift in any way since she passed? A little bit, I think. I mean, I, I used to talk to my mom every day. I would talk to my dad frequently, but not as frequently. And it was more sort of practical and <laughs> typical dad kind of thing. Sounds familiar <laughs> as an only child. Yeah. yeah. Um, but and I think, you know, so now we have a little more of an emotional relationship. He can be emotional, too, and so I've definitely been exposed to that more. And I think just trying to, I'm trying to be there for him as his daughter, but also, you know, there's a huge gap in his life and trying to be, you know, helpful in any way I can. Absolutely. So you shared with me that your mom's realistic, optimistic perspective influenced your decision to become a clinical psychologist. Was there a specific moment that you decided to do this because of her related to her? I don't think there was one specific moment, but I would say just growing up with her and seeing how she was able to kind of be positive and optimistic, even though she was dealing with so much all the time. 
I think it gave me a lot of confidence in people and the ability to be hopeful and resilient and just deal with things and still be strong and be able to live a life. Um, so I think it definitely influenced me to to want to help people. I think also just wanting to help her brought out sort of like a caregiver gene in me of wanting to help anyone I can and help people to get through difficult situations. But how did you decide that this was the path to take? It was tough. I think I first I was actually thinking about psychiatry, which is similar, um, and medicine and thinking about how medicine has helped her. And I had other experiences with family members dealing with mental health issues that that also influenced my decision. Um, but pre-med was very hard and I didn't, yeah. I didn't really make it through that very far. So Is that what you did at Tufts? I did for freshman year. Okay. And then I switched over to just psychology. Okay. Um, but I, I knew I wanted to do therapy and I wanted to understand human behavior. I was always really into science and, and understanding like how things are caused and why people do what they do and doing research to understand them better and how to help them better. So I think all of that kind of came together into becoming a psychologist. Yeah. As a psychologist, you obviously work with clients who have invisible illnesses. Mm-hmm. How does your personal experience with your mom change or play into the way you handle clients? Well, I think my mom was not a therapist, but she was a natural, sort of empathic, warm person. And I take a lot from her and just how she would listen to someone or how she would think about where they were coming from. And I think that's helpful. I also sort of understand, I think, when people are dealing with something challenging because I've been through challenging things. I've seen her go through challenging things. So it helps me to be empathic. My mom was really a model of acceptance a lot of the time, which is something I talk to my clients a lot about. And how do we accept these horrible things that we can't change or we can't change in the moment and instead of kind of fighting them? What are some of those tips that you give your clients? Well, a lot of, first of all, mindfulness and breathing and kind of centering in the moment um, and checking the facts and trying not to kind of over-interpret or exaggerate how things are going and really just trying to be more mindful and to take things one step at a time and not kind of predict too far in the future about all the bad things that could happen. And, you know, also I think sometimes when you're able to acknowledge the reality, it helps you to then see a different perspective or problem solve more easily as opposed to just getting stuck in well, this isn't fair, and why am I like this, and it's not okay, and I'll never feel better. So a lot of working on changing the way people are thinking about things. Right. So speaking of that, the reason that I reached out to you and this all came to be was you wrote this article for Thrive Global in response to a piece that your mom had written in 1990. Can you talk a little bit about what that piece was, what got you to write this response, that whole thing, because it was so amazing. Thank you. Yeah, it was it was an interesting journey, actually. So 
I've been going through my mom's stuff, which is a really not fun part of this whole experience. Um, but in cleaning things out, I found a printed out article that just said, like, helping your child cope with a parent with chronic illness. And it looked like it was typed and it didn't have a date and it, I didn't know where it was from or if she had published it or why she wrote it. Uh, but I read it and I found it was very... Uh, familiar and it basically had tips for how to help your child and it was from her personal experience and it was also very kind of inspiring and really comforting to read and and just kind of feel connected to her again so I wanted to figure out was this published because I can't just write it again um, so I did a whole search I actually had my mom's friend who was also my former librarian help me to try to track it down and we did and it was in a, a medical journal that no longer exists in 1990 so I figured How did out you even <laughs> find that. It's just through, uh, you know, library searches. Wow. And there, that stuff still exists. Yeah, it's Not there. just on Google. Right. Um, and it was it was quoted in something, and then we sort of found it. So I decided it would be so great to be able to respond and talk about, as an adult now, how my mom's suggestions really impacted me. So I basically copied her article and then wrote in my own commentary and how it affected me. And it was a really great, just the writing of it was really sort of cathartic and much more meaningful than I anticipated. And it helped me to kind of think through a lot of my childhood and my experience with her and how grateful I was for the way she handled things. Um, and also feel pretty amazed. I think she was around my age when I, I was born. And so to think that she knew how to handle yeah. this difficult situation is quite amazing. I don't know what I would do if I were in her shoes. So Yeah, I mean, I read it several times and it's just, it seems so aligned. I mean, it's not like she wrote a point and you all of a sudden were like, this is totally not how my childhood <laughs> was. I mean, it was so clear that her intentions were so strong mm -hmm. so you know uh real i don't I, I don't know the proper word but to then have your response was just so valuable to be like yeah she tried to do it this way and this is exactly how i felt mm -hmm. and it was just so amazing how that aligned itself i'll be sure to include that in the show notes so everyone can check it out what was the response to putting that piece out there well, it was great. I think it was much more than I, I didn't really know how people would respond. I didn't know if this was just like my personal journal article and I felt good about it and that was it. But a lot of people came out and said, you know, wow, this is so great. Like I'm dealing with something or my friend is dealing with something or, you know, I know someone who could, who should really read this. And I was so glad to know that my mom's legacy was continuing and that her advice was continuing and that our shared experience could really be helpful for so many people. Yeah, because I think those tips that she provided and your responses are relevant here, you know, 30 plus years later, it's no different. And we talk about this a lot on the podcast of there's no manual on how to deal with any of this stuff as a parent, as a caregiver, as a family member. And I think these are really, really helpful tips. So I hope that people will check them out. How do you continue to honor your mom's memory? A lot of ways. I think that's something I think about a lot. There are small things I do, like try to 
wear her jewelry or just to keep a piece of her with me at all times. What do you um, have on? I have a necklace of hers. This one. Got it. <laughs> um, but I think some of the big things, she had a remarkable way of connecting with people, including her doctors. And she had some incredible doctors that she had for 30 years. And one of the things they would often talk about was how she really helped them understand that patients are people, too. And she was very humanizing. She knew everything about their families, even the doctors that wouldn't open up to anyone. Uh, so we actually started a Grand Rounds uh, lecture and award at Mount Sinai Hospital that's uh, going to be given to somebody, a doctor who represents this idea of humanism and medicine. And I think hopefully that'll be an annual award and it'll help to teach doctors that it's important to treat people as people and that they're people too and tips for that. Uh, my mom used to guest lecture in medical school classes about that and about her experience. And she would also have medical students following her around just with her normal day, like that she's just a person, like she would get up, she'd go to the bank, you know, and they would just walk around with her. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's really important to keep that message across. I think on a personal level, she was very friendly and I am trying to be very friendly too and, and we acknowledge everyone and I'm just trying to keep up her, her positive spirit. Love that. That's so cool about this award. So mm -hmm. smart. Well, and I'm someone who has really close relationships with my doctors, too, and I feel like I know things about them that most <laughs> patients don't. So I love hearing that that mm -hmm. was a real trait for her. So anything else related to your practice now that you think is valuable for people to know as it relates to invisible illnesses? Well, I think, I mean, this really is something we deal with every day. Most people we see in our practice, you wouldn't necessarily know that something was going on. I think with mental health issues, it's particularly hard to see. And so whether it's depression or anxiety or just negative thinking patterns or eating disorders, we help to validate people because I think a lot of the times they feel misunderstood or like they can't really ask for help because nobody knows that they need help. And so we're we're dealing with it all the time. And are people finding you through referrals? How does that work? Yeah, I think we have a website, mindwellnyc.com. Um, a lot of people also find us through psychiatrists or other therapists. Since we do very specific treatment, cognitive behavior therapy, not everybody does that. So sometimes we get referrals through that. But you can just Google MindWellNYC and you'll find us. Awesome. That's what I was going to say is how can people learn more about your business and what you're up to. And again, we'll be sure to include that link to Thrive Global on the show notes so you guys can check that out. And thank you so much for chatting with me. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thanks for tuning into Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com. Follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor. Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer. Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music. And Krista Gray for the logo and design concepts.